Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the History of the Congo. Season 3, Episode 3, Lumumba's Final Campaign. Last time, we left the Congo, the country, such as it was, was in significant turmoil. It's only been about six weeks now from Independence Day, but much has changed. Alarmingly, there were now effectively three different governments in the land, each vying for power over part or a whole of the country. Firstly, we have the central government with President Kasavubu as head of state, and Patrice Lumumba officially in operational control as Prime Minister. Secondly, we have the Lunda aristocrat Moise Shombe, leader of the secessionist southeastern Katanga province from the 11th of July, supported by the commercial mining enterprises. And thirdly, we have the Luba elected representative, Albert Kalonji, self-declared leader of the autonomous region of South Kasai from the 9th of August, supported by the diamond mining industries. But there were also others operating less formally outside of these organisations. Following unrest and assaults of ex-colonial Belgian and European citizens, Belgian military had been ever-present too. Throughout the end of July and start of August, they had launched a series of military operations across the country to safeguard their citizens. They had no correspondence now with the Congolese government, and by the end, any diplomatic relations between former colonial power and colony were over. But the Belgian military presence was coming to an end. Following a second UN directive on the 9th of August, the international community commanded an end to their operations. They were directed to leave the Congo permanently. It was now a sovereign country. But in their place others arrived. There was still to be a significant foreign military presence in the Congo. Over 10,000 UN troops from the African nations and non-Cold War aligned European countries had been airlifted in by the US Air Force. These were there strictly as a peacekeeping force. The stress that this placed on Lumumba and Kasavubu must have been immense. They had been talking to and campaigning for Congolese independence for years. But now that it had come, the government was rendered redundant whilst the nation literally teared itself apart. Both Prime Minister and President turned to the international community with Lumumba particularly high profile. His hyperbolic style, however, did him no favours. After any time with him, foreign officials found him unstatesmanlike, to say the least. He was held with little regard by most in positions of international power. The UN saw him as dramatic and unrealistic, whilst other Congolese politicians found him difficult to work with. Even the Catholic Church became frustrated with him. One body who was more cooperative was the USSR. The Soviet regime had replied with full backing to his telegram for military assistance, and indicated that they were willing to support him. Of course, they had no real interest in his prime ministership, and had little faith in his level of communism, but they did see an opportunity to establish leverage in Central Africa, a place they had not operated in previously. Perhaps consumed by the pressure, Lumumba asked the Soviets for military assistance, while simultaneously visiting the US, their Cold War rival. In apparent desperation, he appealed to all sides at the same time, but the US efforts were disastrous. He left a lasting impression of an individual who would not be able to stabilise the situation. Indeed, he may inadvertently push the Congo into the Soviet sphere of influence. Geopolitically, support of both the US and the USSR 
was mutually exclusive during the Cold War. Such flip-flopping left the US very uneasy. They felt that Lumumba was not somebody it was in their interests to support, or even keep in power. We have seen in detail in Season 2 how the USA felt that the resources in the Congo were of importance geopolitically. They did not want to lose access to uranium or copper. But realistically, neither the US or the USSR wanted war with each other. Fortunately, steady heads prevailed. At this point, the military industrial and complex was relatively embryonic compared to today, so they turned to another solution. We have seen in the Spies in the Congo podcast episode how the US state started overseas espionage in Africa in the 1940s. And here again, they were going to build on that. On the 18th of August, at a meeting of the US National Security Council, the President was informed that the UN was so frustrated by Lumumba that they were considering withdrawal. With Belgium now gone, this would have meant that the Soviets would have been the main foreign power in the country. This was not acceptable. There was only one solution. Lumumba was to be... dealt with, so to speak. But before this was enacted, a new leader needed to be found. One more amenable to the Western, and by that I mean American, way of thinking. Initially they turned to President Kasavubu, but they had reservations. The US ambassador, Claire Timberlake, described him as indolent and lazy, as well as not too bright. He wasn't the driving force in the Congolese government. Although he was the joint signatory to any of the telegrams we have seen, he was perceived as enjoying the high life and the trappings of power, especially the general's uniform. But he was pliable, so they opened a dialogue with him. But the US didn't talk only to Kasavubu. They were very impressed with a newly promoted 29-year-old chief of staff. He was the former staff sergeant and journalist who appeared to have the drive Kasavubu lacked. You may remember his name, Joseph Mobutu. For the time being, he took advantage of the US cash donations to foster the relationship. But his time would come. Whilst these succession plans were enacted by foreign powers, Lumumba was still in charge. He was desperate to act against the Katanga and South Kasai provinces. His Republic of the Congo was one country ruled from the capital. Secession was unacceptable. But how to start? At this time, Katanga, although vulnerable, was the stronger of the two. As we have seen, it was mobilising what loyal troops it had, and it was well funded to arm these. Albert Kalonji's South Kasai was less organised though. They did not have money or the foreign backers of Katanga. They had literally been in a civil war with the Lua, and were very much a civilian population taking up arms. I am not sure if this relative weakness drove the sequence of events, but it was to the South Kasai that Lumumba first directed his attention. Lumumba ordered the Congolese army or ANC forces to attack the South Kasai from its south in Luluaborg, from the capital in the west, and from Stanleyville in the north. The Kasai was under assault from multiple directions. The Baluba didn't even have modern weapons to fight back against a relatively modern army. Their force was around 250 policemen and 200 soldiers, armed with 303 Lee Enfield rifles as used by the British in the First World War. We have seen how a military clash of eras works out many times in earlier podcasts. This was no different. At least 5,000 Baluba were killed, people were pulled from the bushes and shot, and villages burned whilst women were attacked. People fought back literally with bows, poison arrows and spears, but ultimately they had little chance. 
the people ran, as ever, into the forests. The atrocities belonging to history were back, and violence, abuse of power, and even evidence of cannibalism were rife. More than 120,000 refugees fled the area, who received medical aid and provisions from the UN forces. Their leader, the Luba Royal Albert Kalonji, fled to Katanga, where he received a mixed reception. Shombe himself was helpful, but the hardline Monongo, Msiri's grandson, was less so. Nevertheless, they were given refuge and became allied to Katanga, presumably under their mutual wish to become independent. It was also a stark realisation to Katanga as to how they would be treated should they lose a military conflict with the ANC. But ultimately, Kalonji and South Kassai did receive some support. They received arms and two companies of men, mostly Baluba refugees and migrants, which became the main resistance force. The UN saw all of this firsthand. They looked at the atrocities and saw a war between the government and its people. UN forces were trained as fighting forces, not as peacekeepers. Without a mandate to militarily intervene, they were simply onlookers, although they were able to report what they saw. The UN Secretary-General Hammarskjöld described the ANC offensive against the Baluba as a genocide, a term which had stark resonance only 15 years after the end of the Second World War. But it was also clear the ANC had not acted alone. The USSR had supplied 14 transport aircraft, 100 cargo vehicles and had airlifted ANC troops to the region. They had responded to Lumumba's second plea for aid just before the invasion. This violence marked the end of any vestige of Lumumba's support in the international community. They could not support a leader who was willing to attack his own people in this manner. The UN, the Baluba and their political parties, Katanga and after the USSR involvement the US all stopped meaningful correspondence with Lumumba. On the 26th of August Larry Devlin, the US station commander in the Congo, received communication from Washington that the removal of Lumumba was an urgent and prime objective. This meant by any means. To add a little cover, there were some bizarre machinations around poisonous toothpaste and other schemes, but ultimately these came to nothing. Devlin himself disposed of the poisonous toothpaste in the mighty river Congo in the dead of night. But the strength of feelings against Lumumba ultimately resulted in a coup from inside. No Congolese person really wanted this in their country. Shombe of Katanga and Kalonji of the South Kassai appealed directly to President Kasavubu for reason and a way forward. Others also had Kasavubu's ear. The UN put their support behind Kasavubu, giving him the backing he needed. Finally, under relentless pressure and perhaps in despair at the state of the country, he acted. On the 5th of September, in an extraordinary public broadcast, Kasavubu formally dismissed his Prime Minister, Patrice Lumumba. Lumumba was understandably enraged. He viewed this as an illegal coup and in turn dismissed President Kasavubu. There was stalemate. Progress was attempted through the machinations of government but both houses supported Lumumba and also refused to remove Kasavubu. The politicians were incapable of resolving this. It was a constitutional crisis and no one knew who ran the country. But a power vacuum never lasts for long. On the 14th of September 1960, Joseph Mamutu made his move and led a military coup. He would neutralise all politicians until the end of the year to stabilise the country. In addition, effective immediately, and tellingly, all Russian and Czech personnel were to leave the country. An interim government was set up. Apparently, there was a collective sigh of relief. 
Tellingly, Kasavubu was retained as president, but Lumumba was placed under house arrest, guarded by Ghanaian UN troops. To prevent any further dissent, Lumumba loyalists were also expelled from government. It was clear that Lumumba's power was being dissolved, powerless to act as he was cooped up in his house. Mobutu was keen on preventing any further unrest. He saw the politicians as power-grabbing and ineffective. He decided the governmental system needed to be changed. He promptly closed the House of Deputies and the Senate. After only two and a half months, the democratic voice of the Congolese was completely disregarded. In their place, Mobutu set up the Board of Commissioners General. These were formerly exiled academics from around the world to help run the country. Openly at this time, he did not see his new position as a permanent move. In Mobutu's own words, its purpose was to temporarily sideline the bickering and incompetent elite. It's hard to determine the effects on this for the ordinary people, if such a term can be used. After Mobutu's coup, there was a return to some semblance of stability. Certainly people would have been glad of the reduced military actions. The South Kassai region calmed down, and UN peacekeepers substantially quelled any further violence. Diamond revenues even allowed improvements to social services, and expats returned home. Although notably, there was still an undercurrent of repression to minorities, unwilling to accept Luba rule. But the Lumumba residence remained the vortex of attention. He was now seen by many as public enemy number one, although he was effectively silenced as his phone line was cut. On the 10th of October, Mobutu decided enough was enough. 200 ANC troops were sent to harass him. But with the UN on guard, they just formed a second perimeter around the UN perimeter. So Lumumba sat double encircled, first by the UN wanting to keep him inside, and secondly by the ANC with orders to arrest him. Debates continued internationally as to what to be done. In early November 1960, there was debate in the UN headquarters in New York. There were two Congolese contingents, Lumumba Gizenga centralist views versus the Shombe Kasavubu federalist view. This debate would set the direction for the majority of the outside world. Almost inevitably, Kasavubu won the vote as the Congolese delegate to the UN. And with that, Lumumba's fate was sealed. He now had no official voice internationally whatsoever, at least as far as the West was concerned. But Lumumba's ambition for the Congo was undiminished. He had to get to Stanleyville in the centre, his power base on the bend of the river in the northern middle of the country. There Antoine Gizenga, his ally, was keeping the Lubumbis centrist dream alive. If he as Prime Minister was to die, he stated, it would not matter. The Congolese people needed martyrs, he said. One cannot question his bravery. On the 27th of November, during an unusually fierce tropical downpour, Lumumba slipped into a car and made his way to Stanleyville. But as ever, he could not resist the opportunity to speak to the people. He was finally out. As fervent as ever, and buoyed by enthusiastic receptions wherever he went, he drew crowds in the villages he passed through. He received rapturous welcomes. He was very much still beloved by the people. Mobutu needed to find him. This was dangerous and incendiary. But Lumumba's desire to see the people didn't help his escape. His very popularity in relationship with the people as he spoke was also his downfall. His escape to safety all but halted. And finally, and almost inevitably, he was caught. On December the 1st, he tried to cross the Sankura River, but was found at the crossing point. He had been on the run for four days. He was immediately placed under arrest by Mamutu's ANC troops and flown to Camp Hardy. 
but now in the hands of the ANC he no longer had the protection of UN troops. He was treated brutally. His hands were tied and his glasses were smashed. To add insult to injury, someone screwed up the text of his famous Independence Day speech and stuffed it into his mouth. It doesn't look as if the central Congolese government, also known as Mobutu, knew what to do with him after the effort of capturing him. It does remind me a little of Simon Kimbangu. How were they to silence him? Lifetime imprisonment? Execution? But they never had the chance to reach a conclusion. On the 12th of January, the ANC soldiers at the camp, the site of the original mutiny in July the preceding year, mutinied again. Mobutu had lost control of the situation. By the 17th of January, a new plan had been agreed, ominously with the support of the Belgian government. Lumumba would be flown to Katanga. Yes, that's correct. They decided to fly Lumumba to the very secessionist state that he had been lobbying the UN, the US and the USSR to help him attack. It made sense from Chambé and the Belgians' view as they both hoped to rekindle relations with Leopoldville, but it was not in Lumumba's interests for sure. But this was not about any fair trial for Lumumba. The great game was still in play and the Belgians had not removed their pieces from the board at all when their forces left the country. They wanted to safeguard their economic interests through a relationship with the central government and the friendly state of Katanga. If these two could be reconciled, maybe their economic assets would remain in situ, recognised by the international community. Everyone would soon forget about the Congo, simply move on, and they would still be rich. But yesterday's subterfuge is today's mainstream. As I write this in 2023, exposés of the past of explorations of historical wrongs are commonplace, and it is a Belgium who has written the modern definitive versions of events, Ludo de Witt. He details that as early as the preceding October in 1960, that the Belgian Minister for Africa Affairs wrote explicitly that the Belgium interests required, and I quote, the final elimination of Lumumba. De Witt determined that it was actually this minister who ultimately gave the order for Lumumba's transfer to Katanga. It is clear that the Belgians still had considerable power at this time. So Lumumba was placed on a DC-3 transport plane and flown to the secessionist state. On the journey, several members of the Luba people from South Kasai were responsible for his security. After the atrocities we have seen, predictably, he arrived badly mauled. I like to think that as he flew east, he would have at least had the chance to look out of the windows on the left of the plane looking north. There he may have been aware that his ally Antoine Gazenka was keeping the nationalist dream alive. Gazenka was already forming a government and reaching out to Lumumba supporters across the country, asking them to rise up. But Lumumba's fate was sealed. When he and his two companions, Youth Minister Maurice Mumpolo and Senate Vice President Joseph Akito, arrived in Katanga, they were met by a hostile reception. On landing, they were taken to Bruay Villa on the outskirts of Elizabethville. There, they were tortured and assaulted. Finally, in the presence of Manongo, Chambé's right-hand man and Belgian officers, they were taken outside and summarily shot. Lumumba's dreams were over. Lumumba had won the independence election, but his dreams of a united and pan-Africanist Congo were finished. Faced with the incomprehensible strain of seeing his country violently fracture and an inability to negotiate the relationships of geopolitics, he found himself isolated. His supporters had little real power and, exposed to his enemies, he was killed, murdered. He was an impactful figure, lauded by Malcolm X, no less, as the greatest black man to have ever walked the African continent. He did indeed become 
as he foresaw, an African martyr. But for many Congolese, he has given far more. He is today a figurehead for a united Congo, as the country remains today. He is a true symbol of the power of a united Congo. May he rest in peace. His death remained secret for a short while, but when it was announced, grief and anger shook the world. Citizens marched in protest throughout Europe, North Africa and Israel. Belgium embassies were attacked in Belgrade, Warsaw and Cairo, where he was seen as an anti-imperialist hero. Streets were named after him in Moscow, and the university students there staged a vigil. Looking at this now, there is some assurance that in the 1960s at least, there was widespread passion and engagement in African politics. One can hardly imagine such public emotion at the change of an African leader today. But that is a story for later. Most ominously, the USSR efficiently responded with an absolute rejection of the legitimacy of the new government. They recognised the authority of Kasinga's Free Republic of the Congo, which continued Lumumba's nationalist and pan-African ideals. This counter-state was growing in strength, and as early as 1961, perhaps fuelled by range at Lumumba's death, was gaining control of a huge part of the country. Centred in Stanleyville, the state encompassed over a third of the lands. It was growing in strength and support, even without military aid from outside. Kisenga now ran the entire northeast, including today's cities of Kisangani, Kindu and Bukavu on the shores of Lake Tanganyika. The new Republic of the Congo was still anything but stable as the new government emerged in the centre. Predictably, Katanga did not join the morning. Whilst the instability continued throughout the east and central government, the province continued to reinforce and secure its position. Katanga and its backers, i.e. Belgium and the huge mining enterprise UMHK, had no intention of joining the Congo regardless of UN or central Congolese directives. Even the main power in the region, the US, did not approve of the Katangan secession. The US was committed to existing nation-states and wanted to retain the Congo within its sphere of influence. This Belgian supported secession was akin to neo-colonialism, in the 1960s, the US saw foreign policy through the prism of the Cold War. Any threat to the integrity of the state left the resources of the Congo at risk for communist infiltration and the USSR. Katanga was an affront to the post-World War II New World Order of Stable States. On the 21st of February 1961, the United Nations stepped up their demands for a withdrawal of all Belgian and foreign military personnel from the Congo not under UN command. This was specifically targeted to Katanga. Belgium complied. But Katanga was not open to rejoining the Congo at all, and so dug in against the UN. The Katangan gendarmerie and Belgium leadership were already a successful force, but with the withdrawal of the Belgians they needed a stronger military arm. The geopolitical avenues to them were largely closed, but they still had money and many sympathisers to their cause in Belgium and Southern Africa and so they combined this and started to recruit, you guessed it, mercenaries. The mercenaries came from three main sources. The first of this was the predictable loyalist Belgians. Some of these had more grandiose aims of making Katanga a Belgian redoubt and the start of the campaign to bring the Belgian monarchy back to power as opposed to just head of state, but this was not all of them. Many were simply there as a continuation of service, since the exodus in July 1960, many Europeans had returned to their former lives in the Congo. There were now some 20,000 such returnees in Katanga alone. For them, this was a lucrative opportunity to engage in. Secondly, there was the South African diaspora. 
I use this loosely as it encompasses basically the English-speaking peoples of South Africa, North and South Rhodesia and Nyasaland. These also included many British people, often ex-servicemen, who had returned home to the reign of their mother country disenchanted and seeking adventures in warmer climates after service overseas. These men were recruited by various means, but often as easily as an advert at the local paper, such as the Star and the Rand Daily Mail. A captain could earn £180 a month, with lower ranks receiving less, equivalent to nearly £4,000, or indeed $4,000 today. But the incentive wasn't just money. Here are the reasons as voiced by one young recruit. I don't think anybody came just for the money. It was mainly adventure, boredom, and to stop communists moving south. Katanga was a very nice peaceful country, until the Congolese and the UN attacked it. Shombe was a very good and very popular president, and happy to employ white people if a black one could not do the job, hence the need for us. So the reasons weren't entirely grounded in geopolitics, as you would expect for individuals. Anti-communism was there as a sentiment, but to some extent people just thought Katanga should be left alone. The apartheid regimes of southern Africa framed their views, but they were not necessarily aligned with 100% as they were happy to work for Shombe. The third group of mercenaries is a little more surprising, the French. But there was of course context. France was already supplying Katanga weapons through Congo Brazzaville, the former French colony just across the river from Kinshasa. This included three Fuga training jets which were justified as a pre-independence order. France, as we have seen with the Algerian conflicts, was not at all wedded to the US-led UN drive against colonialism. Colonel Roger Trinquet was the lead man from this group. Experienced in counterinsurgency fighting since the 1930s and experienced in Southeast Asia and North Africa, he had a great deal of knowledge to bring to the Katangan forces. Shombe, via his Defence Minister's recommendations, was enthusiastic. Interestingly, Trinquier was close to the French regime, having supported de Gaulle in his push for power in 1958. But like many of the French army, he felt betrayed as the French government's decision not to support the war in Algeria and felt aggrieved at the French's public sentiment. This loyalty even went so far as to talk to the French Foreign Minister Pierre Mesmer as to whether he should proceed to the Congo. Mesmer revealed that de Gaulle's master plan was to support Katanga and gain favour, such that it would fall back with the central Congolese government. The Congolese government would then fall under French control, as the other former French colonies would do. They planned to extend the French influence overseas, disregarding the Belgians who were unhappy at their plans. And here we leave the Congo, in the spring of 1961. It is now some nine months after independence, and the main uprisings by the general populace have somewhat subsided. Former evacuees have started to return, and most people would be happier with the more settled solution. But geopolitically things were still strained. Mobutu sat as an unelected leader, and Katanga and the Kasai sat as independent regions, outside of the central sphere of influence. Gazenga had grown as a rival leader centred in Stanleyville, ruling roughly a third of the land, and the outside world still campaigned and supported different directions for the country. The USSR supported Gazenga, whilst the US supported Mobutu and his centralist government. Meanwhile, Belgium surreptitiously supported wealthy Katanga, in competition with France, which was now revealing its ambitions. In the face of all of this, the UN was gearing up to take more direct military action to resolve the situation once and for all. Oh, and we haven't seen them yet, 
but Maoist China also had ambitions. This we shall see next time. Who would have thought that once again so much of the world's attention would be focused on the Congo? The peoples were as ever beholden to the whims of greater powers than their own. Keep listening to see how the final phase of the First Republic works out. So until then, as ever, thanks for listening and safe travels. (laughs) 